Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast of the Clayton Yider Institute of International Trade and Finance at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Plummer, the Any Professor of International Economics at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the director of SICE Europe, the school's European campus in Bologna, Italy. Dr. Michael Plummer, thank you so much for joining us today on Trade Matters. We really appreciate that. It's wonderful uh, to participate. I have to start by just giving a shout out to Bologna, Italy. You're joining us from Italy, where you're the director of SICE Europe, and I am someone who was fortunate enough to spend about 10 months of my life there as a graduate student at SICE. So thank you for joining us from across the pond today. Sure. My pleasure. So you focus a lot on Asia in your research, and I just want to start by um, asking you to tell us a little bit more about the kinds of questions that you are currently investigating when it comes to Asia and trade and economics to give us a sense of your research. Well, mostly uh, my recent research has been related to estimating the effects of mega-regional trade arrangements um, in the region. And by mega-regional, we mean you know, plurilateral arrangements that uh, have a significant impact on international trade. And so this has included the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, the uh, its, its successor, the, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement on Trans-Pacific Partnership, a real tongue twister, the CPTPP, uh, which is the TPP without the United States, uh, as well as the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP. And uh, so we've, we've done a good deal of work on that, as well as things related to, say, U.S.-China relations. Uh, and I've done a good deal of work over the last 30 years on the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and the economic effects of closer regional integration in Southeast Asia. Great. Okay. Well, let's start by talking about the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP. So just to give our listeners a little background, it's a proposed trade agreement between 15 Asian countries, including China, and it was 16 until India pulled out recently. It's been in the Mm -hmm. works for a number of years, six or seven years or more. Um, Reportedly, they're essentially concluding negotiations, and it's possible this could be signed in February or March this year. And if it goes forward, my understanding is it would be the largest trade agreement in the world by population and GDP. But my understanding is also that the RCEP is not as high quality of an agreement as as others, like the TPP, for example, or CPTPP are. It doesn't include labor environmental chapters. Um, Many ag products remain highly protected. It doesn't address state-owned enterprises. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the quality and status of the RCEP? Well, you're 100% right that it certainly doesn't meet the standards of the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the CPTPP. Uh, But remember that those agreements uh, were led the TPP was led by the United States, and the United States wanted to have a 21st century agreement that would update rules, global rules, uh, on international trade and investment in the modern 21st century economy. Uh, The World Trade Organization had, when it was created uh, in the mid-1990s, has been useful, I think, in providing a legal framework uh, for international trade and dispute settlement mechanism, et cetera, but it hasn't been very effective in creating new rules. In fact, uh, the last major agreement there was in the mid-90s and when the economy was very different. There wasn't any digital economy, for example, so you you haven't had a major updating of these rules. And the TPP, with the TPP, the United States wanted to do that and 
create uh, a number of measures and disciplines uh, that would be effective in guiding international trade. And the TPP countries had enough diversity uh, so as to create a very interesting framework. It had, it's got a chapter on state-owned enterprises, for example, which is, uh, it had to deal with uh, Vietnam and Singapore in, intensively because of the large state-owned sectors uh, in those countries. But that would have been a, a sort of a chapter that could be actually used in any agreement with China. It included deeper arrangements in intellectual property, uh, very deep uh, cuts in tariffs, up to 98% across the board. So the interesting thing about the TPP is it, it wasn't just policies at the border, it was also policies behind the border. And that's really what's most important for the 21st century, digital economy and trade and services. The RCEPT agreement, however, is really made up of developing countries. It is, when it was launched in November 2012, it was said to be an ASEAN-centric agreement. So the 10 countries of the Association of Southeast, Na Southeast Asian Nations really had a key role in pushing that forward, includes both least developed countries like Laos and Cambodia and Myanmar, as well as middle-income countries. And they were going to be setting the standards uh, together with China and India. And so it obviously wasn't going to be as as detailed and as comprehensive as the TPP. So likely that the RCEP agreement will lead to a reduction in 89% of products uh, to zero, whereas, as I mentioned, it would be about 98% in the CPTPP. And as you mentioned, there's not going to be any, uh, you know, the liberalization of agricultural products and other sensitive areas, including services, is going to be much more minimal. You couldn't expect countries like Cambodia or even India to really be able to implement the kind of rigors that are necessary in the CPTPP. So, in effect, if you go back to APEC in uh, November 2010 and what was called the Yokohama Vision, the idea that APEC had is, look, what we'll do is we'll have two different tracks. We'll have a Trans-Pacific Partnership track and we'll have an Asian track. And they will both lead to negotiations in 2020 uh, to try to create a free trade area in the state of the Asia Pacific, which would include all of APEC countries and perhaps others. And that was supposed to start this year. Obviously, it's not going to happen, but that continues to be the goal. And so you could think of it this way, that the RCEPT arrangement, even though it's weaker in many ways, is a way of trying to bring up the uh, least developed countries to a framework or to a position where they could actually form an agreement with the developed countries. So it's, it's sort of a, this what's called the Yokohama vision is sort of a pathway to try to bring the region up together. So I think it's, um, the RCEP agreement is certainly not as deep as the CPTPP, but that that's understandable. And if I might mention uh, in, this, in the modeling we've done, even though uh, ASEAN, for example, has free trade arrangements with all of the other countries in the RCEP region, in fact, it was a requirement to join RCEP as a negotiating partner that the country have a free trade area in place with ASEAN. Um, even though you've got that, um, our numbers are actually fairly significant in the potential benefit to the ASEAN countries. So it is adding a layer of depth that did not exist before.
Okay, so a number of things I want to follow up on there. Thank you for that. One is this idea of two tracks in the Yokohama vision that you mentioned. So some of the countries in RCEP are also in CPTPP, which is now in force for about seven countries that have ratified that agreement. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you assess those dynamics? I, you know, I saw uh, an article in Vox, um, you and your colleague at Brandeis, Peter Petrie, wrote in an article there last year that Canada, Japan, Vietnam, and other countries are already using CPTPP rules to motivate reforms that are politically difficult. So can you kind of unpack that for us? You know, one, what kind of reform is CPTPP helping induce in these countries? And then how does that relate to their participation in RCEP? I think the CPTPP is sort of aspirational for these countries, and it's a good guidelines as to how to be best practices and how to be cutting edge. So that uh, Prime Minister Abe in of Japan, when he launched his three arrows for economic reform, one would be monetary policy, one was fiscal policy, and the other would be structural reforms, and literally within there, the TPP as a way of helping guide them towards structural reforms. And, and the same was true of Vietnam and even Canada about using these cutting edge uh, policies as a way of moving the country forward uh, and to be you know, at the level of best practices that are, would be essential for competition. And so the CPTPT, CPTPT does a good job of doing that. And actually some of its provisions are even being already imported outside of the region. I think if you look at the, uh, the new uh, USMCA agreement, uh, or some of us call uh, NAFTA 0.8, it does have some uh, CPTPP uh, provisions in it. And um, everyone is looking at this as sort of for standards in the international economy. So the CPTPP has developed um, these very interesting global standards. And what I find amazing is that, first of all, it's very strange that the CPTPP uh, emerged in the first place, because without the United States, uh, it's a much smaller agreement. And uh, when the US pulled out, uh, Abe, for example, said that the TPP without the United States was meaningless. So it wasn't clear at all that this would go forward, or if it went forward, what it would look like because the US was such so instrumental in developing the TPP. But in the end, the countries agreed that they would almost change nothing. They, with a 6,000 page document, they only suspended 22 measures. And these measures were all US priorities, including an intellectual property, uh, express service delivery, uh, delivery uh, as well as labor and the environment. But they kept that in because they really do hope that the United States uh, will come back to the agreement. So it went forward and in a way, I think that that gave an impetus for the RCEP to continue to move forward and to, uh, to try to open up markets uh, in the region. Uh, in a way, some people would say really the RCEP uh, really uh, began as a way of uh, China's way of competing with the United States and the TPP. It felt as though maybe the United States was trying to contain China, and so it it tried to negotiate this uh, this agreement. I, I think that's probably a, a bit exaggerated, but certainly uh, the, China has tried to tried to demonstrate that it is interesting in bringing forward regional cooperation in Asia, both from a policy point of view, which is RCEP, 
uh, as well as in terms of hard infrastructure, which is the Belt and Road Initiative. So um, this ch role of China as a leader uh, is, is very important. And in terms of the overlapping membership, I think that's always been the best guarantee that you wouldn't have contradictory measures in the TPP and in RCEP, because it wouldn't make any sense if you've got Japan in both agreements and Malaysia and Vietnam, et cetera, Brunei, Singapore, um, they would always ensure that there wouldn't be contradictory, com uh, there wouldn't be uh, contradictory policies. So I really do think that uh, you can start to fold RCEP into a CPTPP and eventually um, merging RCEP into the CPTPP under a uh, free trade area of the Asia-Pacific would be uh, much easier to do. So that's an interesting idea, folding RCEP into a CPTPP eventually. And I want to pick up on the point as well about China's leadership role, because certainly China has at times tried to claim this global leadership role um, in international trade and on the global stage. And I want to cite an interview with the South China Morning Post that you did not too long ago, where you said if the RCEP goes forward, then China will have created a template for how to have a trade agreement between countries that are extremely diverse from the richest to the poorest. So what's the opportunity cost for the United States on that front if RCEP get, gets folded into CPTPP and China is, is kind of an engine be behind creating this template for a pretty diverse region that's really growing? When the United States left the TPP, uh, it, the region was very nervous that uh, the United States was withdrawing from the region. And uh, the, the Trump administration was warned that this would be the case. And in all the economics, economic modeling that we've done on the TPP and estimated the economic effects on the United States, we always would mention that this is, the economic effects would be far less important than the strategic implications of the United States being perceived as leaving the region, whether or not it is. Um, but certainly, uh, it has uh, the idea that uh, there's going to be this imbalance of, you know, China within the region uh, without, uh, if you will, the United States to balance it has made many of these countries very nervous. And uh, in the RCEP, for example, um, India has... Um, said that it's 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 going to withdraw from the region. I mean, the RCEP countries would rather have it stay, in part uh, because of the fact that, for example, Japan would love to have India balance China. So interestingly, the, the focus now isn't on the United States anymore. It's really internal to the region. And so I think the big risk here is that the United States uh, is losing influence in the region uh, because it has withdrawn from this economic cooperation that it had been so instrumental in, lead, in leading. So, the, you know, the regional economies, they want to see closer economic integration. They've, uh, East Asia in particular has counted on uh, trade and investment in order to grow. So really they want to move in that direction uh, and they're no longer finding this leadership from the United States. And so they're getting closer to China. And so that is, um, you know, that's a real challenge, I think, for U.S. policy. So... This is a question I've been really looking forward to asking you that, that segues very nicely um, from what you said into this question. And you talked about the big risk being the U.S. losing influence in the region and the strategic implications. Um, how, how do you as an economist quantify the importance of American leadership in the global economy? I mean, there are implications that go beyond economics, so we, we know that. But 
How do you think about that? Do you, can you quantify that? Leadership seems like a hard thing to actually quantify, but how does an economist think about the implications of the U.S. stepping back from a leadership role in, in the Asia-Pacific region? Unfortunately, we usually don't <laughs> think about those things. Uh, it's very inconvenient to think about the real world. It's really messy. But uh, I think that it is, is, it's really important, and we have to understand uh, that uh, we're only looking at a very small part of what is in a country's interest when it's looking at regional integration. I look around you know, the world and I see you know, hundreds of preferential trading arrangements, you know, free trade areas, et cetera. And I can point out many of them that make no sense from an economic point of view but makes sense from a political point of view, so they go forward. I can't think of any that makes sense from an economic point of view, but not from a political point of view. The politics dominate uh, in, that, in those considerations. In fact, if you look at what's happened in ASEAN, ASEAN has created an economic community, uh, which is sort of loosely modeled on the, the European single market. It uh, technically went into effect in December of 2018, even though it still has a long way to go. Uh, in order to reach that. Honestly, the reason why ASEAN really began is because it was nervous that some of its members were negotiating more advanced with non-regional members than they have within ASEAN. The Singapore-US agreement, for example, at the time when it was uh, created in 2001-2002, was one of the most advanced free trade areas in the world, much more advanced than the ASEAN free trade area. And so the ASEAN leaders were afraid that this was going to have a negative political effect on the region, a centrifugal effect that could uh, be problematic to its diplomatic and its political means. So what it ended up doing is deepening economic integration. So how do you quantify that? I don't know, but I know that the economics are important, but the politics and the strategic areas tend to dominate what policymakers are thinking. And so I think that's important uh, to keep into the into consideration when we're ever evaluating these things. So if I'm able to come up with numbers on the effects of, say, the TPP on the United States, I think our original numbers came to $131 billion uh, permanently, so every year, uh, which was you know less than, it's about one half of 1% of US GDP. I'd argue that is not insignificant because it's on a permanent basis, uh, but, um, that is much less significant than the United States uh, having this uh, this problem of to disengage from the region. And I don't know how to quantify it, but I know it's really it's really important. So it sounds like you're saying, and this is something I often tell students too, is that free trade agreement negotiations are always about more than just trade, more than just the market access that's kind of on the negotiating table. Is yeah, that no, that's absolutely right. And if I might mention with some. Uh, uh, new numbers that we have produced and looking at the RCEP agreement without India that should be out next next week or so. Um, just to give you a preliminary view, uh, interestingly, with India out of the agreement, in economic terms, Japan is worse off and China is better off. And what is really interesting to me is it's Japan that really wants India in. So obviously, the politics of it is much more important than the economics of it from Japan's point of view. And China definitely wants to move forward even without India. And even though it would be better if India were in the agreement. So it's uh, it, it's quite interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm going to switch to 
slightly different tack here and a question about um, the impact of RCEP if it goes into force on the U.S. So as we know, RCEP includes major U.S. trading partners like Japan, as well as competitors for agricultural products like Australia. <clears throat> for example, in Nebraska, where I'm sitting right now, is first in the nation on things like cattle on feed, red meat production, dry edible beans, um, also a leader in corn for grain and soybeans. And many Nebraskans whom I talk with look to Asia for the future and look to Asian countries, including many in RCEP, as important destinations for future agriculture um, exports. So what would an RCEP enforce mean for the U.S., especially for U.S. agriculture, and especially given that we're not part of the CPTPP? I would look at, from an economic point of view, two aspects of that, two different uh implications of RCEP for the U.S. And number one, uh, one could expect that there would be, you know, it will contribute to economic efficiency of the region at the margin. And so uh, the region will be slightly better off and they would therefore would import more from the United States. Um, in our estimates, uh, the United States, um, however, does slightly lose uh, from RCEP, very, very small, but it's fairly, um, but it's still there, and in part because of this trade diversion that you're you're mentioning. But some of that is not, most of that is not agriculture, because as you mentioned earlier, agriculture is not very, uh, is not dealt with very much uh, in the RCEP agreement because it's such a sensitive area. Um, even though India, one of the reasons why India pulled out, no doubt, had to do with the fact that it did not want to compete with New Zealand uh, dairy for example. And so there is some of that, but it is very much, re you know, regulated trade. It's not like you're going to see, you know, major drops in tariffs uh, for agriculture imports in RCEP and therefore putting the U.S. at a major disadvantage to penetrate these markets. Um, they may be, there may be a few areas, but already, you know, meat and, and dairy products are highly regulated in the region. I mean, look at Japan, uh, the meat market in Japan. That was supposed to be a big part of the U.S.-Japan uh, agreement and everything. That is a very much a uh, regulated market. So I, I don't think it, it, it'll have a major effect on agriculture and that in the longer term, RCEP will be good for growth in the region and that should lead to some additional imports. But I don't think it's going to be a major, uh, major uh, factor. Okay. You mentioned Japan there, and as you know, two um, kind of partial deals between the U.S. and Japan went into effect January 1st, one on agriculture, one on digital products. And I wonder how, how would you contrast those two partial U.S.-Japan deals with how the U.S.-Japan trading relationship would have looked through the TPP if we had stayed in that and that had gone into effect? To begin, I'm not convinced at all that that U.S.-Japan agreement is consistent with WTO rules. Mm-hmm. Clearly, it says in Article 24 of uh, the GATT WTO that uh, any sort of preferential arrangements have to meet certain criteria, including it has to be comprehensive. In other words, substantially all goods. Uh, the tariffs have to go to zero and you can't raise tariffs on other products. You, you know, just having agriculture and digital products does not meet that criteria at all. So that's that's a problem, I think, in terms of uh, WTO rules. But certainly the United States did not get uh, the kind of uh, deal that it would have gotten with the TPP because, you know, with the TPP uh, in that agreement, uh, there was uh, on the table 
some access to the U.S. market. It wouldn't have happened until like 2030, but U.S. automobiles access to that market would have come into effect at a certain point. And so Japan was much more willing uh, to open up uh, into certain markets uh, to in the TPP. And so when we did our modeling of a U.S.-Japan free trade area and some earlier work we did in 2016, uh, we found that the effects were much, much smaller than they would have been uh, with the TPP because uh, the template is, would have been much more restrictive and there would have been much less in terms of, of market access. So, Okay. Zooming out to a bigger question, what, what else is going on in Asia in terms of regional economic integration that you think maybe we're not hearing enough about, at least not here in the United States? Or what, what else would you think we should be paying more attention to? Well, uh, I think that we should be paying much more attention to ASEAN and what's going on in the ASEAN region. Um, it is a, a region that often gets ignored. Uh, I mean, I've been to D.C. and people have thought that I've been mispronouncing the word Asian when I say ASEAN. I mean, it's not a very well-known uh, term, even though it includes 630 million people. And it has a long process of economic integration that has, okay, it's not the European Union, but it has made uh, some strides. The, the, the ASEAN free trade area is in effect, and it does lead to free trade across these countries. And it's um, uh, a good place for regional production networks and, and these sorts of things because uh, of the fact that you've got this, these reduced barriers of trade. So if you think of, of the region, the ASEAN region includes a country like Singapore, which has a per capita income that's higher than the United States. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, it's got least developed countries and it's got middle income countries that have been high performing like Malaysia and Thailand, at least in the past. Vietnam, which has been is now a middle-income country growing very rapidly. There's a lot of exciting things happening uh, in ASEAN. And with this restructuring outside of China, with the U.S.-China trade war, for example, it is just speeding up a process that had already begun of you know, the supply chains moving out of China into Vietnam and elsewhere where you have uh, you have lower costs of, of doing business. So I think that that's something to watch out for, uh, that trade. And by the way, if you look at uh, dairy exports of the United States, for example, Southeast Asia, uh, I believe, was the second most important last year. So it is a source of uh, an important source of uh, agricultural exports for the U.S. So it's uh, it's a region that's very interesting. You've got a negotiations for a China, Korea, Japan free trade area, trilateral free trade area that has gone through a number of rounds. Uh, but and that that agreement is supposed to have some value added onto RCEP. And I for political reasons, it's very difficult to see that uh, coming to fruition, even though it could happen within the context of RCEP. But RCEP is much better than the current China, China-Korea arrangement, which is very superficial. So the you know RCEP is building on the China-Korea arrangement, uh, and that trilateral between China, Japan, and South Korea may someday uh, add depth to Northeast Asia. But when you when you look at the numbers of the effects of RCEP. Uh, a lot of the big numbers come from Northeast Asia because you do have a free trade area between a lot of the other countries and, and you don't have it there. And these are 
you know, the second and third largest economies in the world. And, and Korea, of course, is a member of the OECD. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot going on, I think, in the region. But the big news would be, you know, CPTPP, RCEP, and uh, the ASEAN Economic Community, from a policy point of view, anyway. That's, this is different from the Belt and Road Initiative and, and these sorts of things. Right. Okay. Last question, and I ask this of every guest on this podcast, and that's just something that you've read lately. What have you read lately about trade, a book, article, reports that is particularly striking to you? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. In my current role as director of SICE Europe, I don't have as much time to read uh, as I would like to. Uh, but uh, I think I've been reading some uh, more general uh, pieces on trade, and I read a very interesting article by Doug Irwin at um, Dartmouth University called "The Truth About Trade," and it's in Foreign Affairs magazine. So it's read for it's written for non-technical audiences, but I think that gives the uh, a very strong. Uh, argument uh, in favor of trade, looking at trade from a uh, from an economist's point of view, because I think a real threat out there is that uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about trade. Uh, I believe that there's a lot of people out there that are using these uh, false narratives on trade for political purposes that actually are problematic, not just for the United States, but for other countries. And what I really like about this uh, Doug Irwin's piece, he's a very, an excellent economist, is he's able to bring things down to really a grassroots level. For example, the, uh, in the United States, there were 157,000 or so workers in the textile and clothing industry. And yet there were at the time 40 million people living under the poverty line in the United States. So you've got 40 million people that are struggling every month just to make ends meet. And so therefore, does it make sense to increase significantly the price of textile and clothing in the United States to these people in order to save a few jobs in the textile and clothing industry? as well as increasing price, by the way, to the rest of us. The one thing I would add to that discussion, too, is the effects that these things have on, on foreign countries, that when we protect textiles and clothing or other sorts of labor-intensive goods, it means we're not importing it from the, some of the poorest countries in the world. And if they're able to export, that allows them to reduce uh, poverty, absolute poverty, significantly. So anyway, that's an interesting piece I read recently. Thank you, yeah, for mentioning that. I've, I've seen um, Doug Irwin's work, and I'm working my way through his large tome, Clashing Over Commerce, which is a very accessible history of, of trade, yeah, in the United States. And so um, thanks for mentioning that. We'll put that article that you mentioned in our show notes. Um, Dr. Michael Plummer, thank you so much for giving us a lot of insight into Asia today and more. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was uh, very interesting. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Rebel Seclocha and Brienne Wolf for helping produce this podcast. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at yiterinstitute at unl.edu. That's Y-E-U-T-T-E-R institute at unl.edu. Or follow us on Twitter at unl underscore yiter. Opinions expressed on trade matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Yider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.